The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to introduce Bruce Friedrich. Bruce is Senior Director for Strategic Initiatives at the Farm Sanctuary, which is the nation's leading farm animal protection organization. Bruce directs Farm Sanctuary's efforts to improve farm animal welfare, through legislation, litigation, and government policy. Bruce has a very interesting past. Before joining Farm Sanctuary, he was Vice President for Policy at People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, where he worked for 13 years, spearheading some of PETA's most successful efforts, including forcing McDonald's to adopt some groundbreaking animal welfare guidelines. Thank you for that, Bruce. Bruce is also a frequent blogger at Huffington Post. He's co-authored the popular Animal Activist Handbook, And in addition to his work for PETA, Bruce taught high school English for two years in inner-city Baltimore, where he received a very prestigious Teacher of the Year Award, which speaks to your effectiveness at reaching people. He also spent more than six years running a shelter for homeless families and the largest soup kitchen in Washington, D.C., Bruce holds degrees from Grinnell College in Iowa, Johns Hopkins University, and the London School of Economics. Long bio here, but it's very important that we read it. Bruce is on the governing board of the Catholic Vegetarian Society and the advisory board of the Christian Vegetarian Society. He is a founding member of the Society of Religious and Ethical Vegetarians. Bruce, let me extend a warm welcome to you. It's it's absolutely my pleasure, and uh, feel free to cut that bio down to a sentence. (laughs) Well, I will during the halfway mark, but I I thought your background really helped our listeners understand who you are and where you're coming from, and that has to be my first question, which is, how did you get from an education, economics, and English degree to caring so much about animals? Well, I uh, adopted a vegan diet for environmental reasons, back in 1987, so the simple um, inefficiency of feeding crops to animals so that we can eat animals. As somebody who cares deeply about the environment, I had trouble reconciling that. Um, And I didn't get the the animal issue until the early 90s. I was running a homeless shelter and the largest soup kitchen in Washington, D.C., and I read a book called Christianity and the Rights of Animals, It's by an Anglican theologian who is also a professor of theology at Oxford University. His name is Andrew Lindsay. And he posits a sort of uh, liberation theology for animals. So in this book, he talks about the fact that God created animals with certain needs. God created animals to be made out of flesh and blood and bone, just like human beings. They have the same five physiological senses that we do, and from a faith standpoint, Lindsay's argument is that by their being, you know, quoting St. Paul, they glorify God. And as a Roman Catholic, this whole argument really spoke to me. It wasn't something I had ever considered before, but I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And, and I think the argument is entirely, you know, it's for people of any religion or no religion. It's about the nature of taking science 
seriously and taking our mission on the planet seriously and saying that scientifically we know that other animals have these same, they're made of the same stuff that we are. They have the same five physiological senses that we do. They have needs and they are individuals just like dogs and cats. And for the same reason, most of us would recoil at the idea of abusing a dog or a cat there's not really a good reason not to recoil similarly at the abuse of a chicken or a pig or any animal. And that sort of argument, I mean, he put it into a faith context, but it needn't be that presented that way. That argument really spoke to me. And in 1996, a mutual friend of mine who was involved in homeless advocacy in Washington, D.C., um, put me in touch with the president and founder of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and I went to work there running their vegetarian campaign. Well, tell me a little bit about the fast food BMF McDonald's and what groundbreaking animal welfare guidelines Peter was able to establish with them. Yeah, so the longest-running trial in British history is referred to by the media as McLibel. And McDonald's sued a couple of... Um, jobless environmental activists who worked with an organization called Greenpeace London, which had no affiliation with Greenpeace International or Greenpeace USA, but it was called Greenpeace London. They were passing out these leaflets that said, what's wrong with McDonald's? And it spelled out half a dozen things that they thought were wrong with McDonald's. And McDonald's sued them. And because they didn't have any money or jobs, they were able to get free legal representation and the court system in the United Kingdom is really quite generous. And out of this trial came a thousand-page verdict from the chief judge. About a hundred pages of it talked about cruelty to animals. And the judge held that McDonald's was morally culpable with cruelty to animals, that McDonald's was responsible because they had a big enough shopping cart that they could dictate practices of their suppliers. They refused to do so. And he held that in half a dozen specific ways, which he lays out over these hundred pages, he says any reasonable person presented with the evidence would agree that McDonald's was supporting the egregious abuse of animals, both in the United States and in the United Kingdom, which were the areas that he looked at. So we went to McDonald's, this is back in 1997, and ended up entering into negotiations with them. So this was pretty soon after I came to work at PETA, and I was running the veg campaigns, and this was a part of that. And we ended up in about two years of negotiations with McDonald's, which resulted in nothing. So we launched a campaign against them, and we created a, a bloody Ronald McDonald, which we passed out in front of McDonald's restaurants, and we created bumper stickers that uh, had Son of Ron, and we took Ronald McDonald and gave him a butcher's knife and a satanic grin, and we had the website com. started running billboards. We did some hundreds of demonstrations. We had activists all over the country in front of McDonald's restaurants alerting people to the fact that if they were eating McDonald's, they were supporting this uh, you know, hideous laundry list of abusive animals. And after about 11 months, McDonald's agreed to make some changes. And uh, the changes are really the barest of bare minimums, and, and sadly, the corporation has not done anything in the last decade to one of the things that they agreed to do was to continue to make improvements, to work with their suppliers. 
and they really haven't done one thing in the last decade. So PETA has relaunched a campaign against McDonald's focused on some of the abuses that the judge wrote about that they haven't made an iota of progress on. Uh, The Humane Society of the United States filed an SEC petition for false advertising against McDonald's just, uh, well, I guess it was actually against Smithfield Foods a couple of days ago, but pointed out that Smithfield is a major McDonald's supplier. And they did some laudable things with regard to slaughterhouse inspections, severing ties with slaughterhouses that failed audits, refusing to buy from egg suppliers that starve birds for two weeks to shock the animal's bodies into another laying cycle, which was the beginning of the end of that practice industry-wide. So they did some laudable stuff, but they continue to do things in the United States that their entire European supply chain has denounced. And in the United States, they're, they're refusing to do anything about it. So, for example, the pregnant pigs of McDonald's suppliers are kept in what's called gestation crates, where the animals can't turn around for their entire lives. They can barely move. And imagine getting into your car and not moving from the seat, and there are bars around you, and you're there for more than two years. As you can imagine, the animal's muscles and bones atrophy. You know, they're living in their own excrement, so they end up with uh, ammonia burns all over their skin. And pigs are very intelligent animals. They go psychologically insane from the absolute unmitigated boredom of these sorts of conditions. McDonald's does the same exact sort of thing to all of their egg-laying hens. So all of their egg-laying hens are kept in what's called battery cages, which are cages where they cram five hens into 18 by 20-inch wire mesh cages, 100,000 hens in a shed. Not one animal could spread one wing in these conditions. So again, their muscles and bones atrophy, and they go insane from lack of mental stimulation. And I could go on and on with a sort of laundry list of abuses that McDonald's continues to support that the judge in Europe held that any reasonable person would consider to be cruel, although legal, still horribly cruel, and which McDonald's has made no progress on in the last decade. Hmm. You know, people really don't like to hear these things, do they? And and that's one of the issues that we struggle with when we're trying to work in education and advocacy is how do we describe the conditions, help people move towards making a change, and without turning them off at the gate, we are so separated from the farm, so we don't see what happens on a daily basis, and it's easier not to, isn't it? It's easier not to see. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is. I think that our uh, I think our challenge is not as great as as some people seem to think it is because people are naturally kind. They don't want to support abuse. So Gallup in both two, that May of 2003 and May of 2008, they did a poll on attitudes toward animals, and the numbers didn't change that much. In both of those polls, 97% of Americans said that they would like to see animals legally protected from abuse. They would like to see laws to protect animals from abuse. 97% of Americans don't agree on anything, right? Right. This seems to be the one thing everybody can get behind is that animals should be legally protected from abuse. 
So I think that when I'm having conversations with people about these sorts of issues, I try to have conversations that are Socratic in nature, Mm -hmm. which is to say I, I like to ask people what they know and what they think and to actually have a dialogue. Because on any issue, people tend not to want to have facts rammed down their throats. And I have found that people tend to be really open to and interested in learning about these issues if they're learning about it in a sort of dialogue manner mm-hmm. rather than a uh, you know, sort of uh, laundry list of abuses manner. And, uh, you know, obviously a, an interview format's not the perfect uh, way to sort of have that conversation, but, but one-on-one I think that it, uh, it oftentimes goes extremely well. People do want to know they are appropriately horrified when they find out and they want to make more compassionate decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that leads us to making those decisions. When we first had our initial conversation before the interview, you shared that you're a vegan, and I shared that I'm an omnivore, with a caveat, and that caveat is that I, I do not want to eat meat from an animal that has had a tortured life. And making those decisions, however, in the marketplace, you know, choosing food that comes from a humane setting is difficult, and the labels may be a little confusing in the marketplace, if indeed consumers even have a choice. So I've really, this is a two-part question. One, how do we make a difference politically? And two, how do we make a difference in the marketplace with our daily food dollars, which are great votes? I mean, uh, making a difference politically is often as easy as signing up on the email lists of organizations that are working on issues that are important to you. And that's going to be true whether your issue is the environment or workers' rights or animals. So I would encourage people to sign up at farmsanctuary.org for our email list, and we will keep people apprised of legislation in your area, uh, as well as corporate campaigns as they are coming along. And, And we encourage people to write to uh, their legislators and to make phone calls to get involved in farm animal issues. Making a decision in the marketplace is, is similarly not difficult. At Farm Sanctuary, we make the point that for the same reason most of us would not eat dogs or cats, a similar argument would point toward not eating chickens or pigs or fish or any animals, and that's uh, at the end of the day, what we advocate, but for people who are going to continue to eat animals, uh, like you said, it's, uh, it can be very confusing. So, for example, the pork industry has what it calls swine welfare assurance, and that stamps the imprimatur of swine welfare onto the worst abuses of pigs. Mm. Um, it's really quite loathsome. And the United Egg Producers, until they got smacked down by the FTC and the Better Business Bureau, um, used to stamp onto eggs animal welfare certified. And now what they stamp onto their eggs, and and both the Better Business Bureau and the FTC said, by no reasonable definition is what you guys do to hens, animal welfare. And so now they stamp UEP certified, which doesn't really mean anything. Uh, But there are some labels that are meaningful. The Animal Welfare Institute um, has a label that guarantees small farms. Um, There is certification that is checked 
up upon, um, and they really do have the best animal welfare standards of any of the certification programs. And if you do a, a search for Animal Welfare Institute, you can find their program and also find where the farmers who they work with are located. There's another organization named Farm Forward, and they don't have a certification program, but they're probably even a step up from the Animal Welfare Institute in terms of working with farmers on best practices. The people they work with actually treat the animals very, very well. Slaughter is a whole other matter, and uh, unfortunately, pigs and cattle, even from the Animal Welfare Institute program or the farm, the ones that Farm Forward works with, Pigs and cattle go to the same slaughterhouses as factory farmed animals. So, I mean, I guess to the degree that, uh, I mean, it's just something you can't get around at this Mm -hmm. point. And bird slaughter for the small slaughterhouses, they're not transported as far because they can be slaughtered on the farm, but they're all still conscious when their throats are slit, which is uh, sort of a a gruesome last few minutes. But their lives, I mean, the, the, the time that they spend alive is significantly less bad than what happens on most factory farms. There are a couple of other programs that are, are a marked improvement over factory farms, but that are still not fantastic. Um, Whole Foods has a program that if you get up to five stars, they, they have a program that's a rating one through five. And if you get up to five, it's comparable to the Animal Welfare Institute or Farm Forward. If you get up to four, it's moving in that direction. One, two, and three are not quite as good, but... Uh, they're transparent, which is a move in the right direction. You can see what's happening at stages one, two, three, four, and five, so that's good. There's uh, an organization called Humane Farm Animal Care, which is uh, a step up from factory farming, but not uh, not a huge step up from factory farming. And then the American Humane Association has a, has a program. I can't remember what it's called, but it's not very good. It's a, a couple steps down from Humane Farm Animal Care, the uh, the American Humane Association is uh, unfortunately uh, moving into to farm animal issues and uh, are sort of dumbing down uh, farm animal welfare and it's uh, it's it's sort of too bad to see that illustrious organization not really living up to its name. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Bruce Friedrich. He is the Senior Director for Strategic Initiatives at Farm Sanctuary, where he leads Farm Sanctuary's legislation and litigation efforts. Bruce, let's talk about the Farm Sanctuary specifically. How did it start, and what does it do, and your role specifically there? So Farm Sanctuary was started 25 years ago by uh, Jean Bauer and Lori Houston, a couple who were they found a sheep named Hilda on a dead pile at a stockyards. They started out doing investigations of stockyards, and uh, in order to raise money to do their work, they were selling veggie dogs um, out of a VW bus uh, at Grateful Dead concerts. So uh, very, very grassroots beginning, and they found um, Hilda on a dead pile, and they, they pulled her off the dead pile, and they took her home, and she was... Uh, the first animal who ended up getting sanctuary. They uh, started the Watkins Glen Shelter um, some years after that, which is our our signature uh, farm sanctuary. And then uh, now we have three farm sanctuaries, one in Orland, California, one in Watkins Glen, New York, and one in Acton, California, which is just outside Los Angeles. We provide shelter for abused, sort of the uh, animals who have survived factory farms and have come to us, and we provide shelter for them. We also do education 
which is focused primarily on veganism and how to and why to live a vegan lifestyle. And then our advocacy department, which I'm in charge of, works on things like humane labels. Um, We work on legislation. We work on litigation. And most of what we do in advocacy is focused on lessening the abuse of animals. So uh, working on legislation to ban battery cages or veal crates or gestation crates. Um, One of the things that we'll be working on very hard in fiscal year uh, 2012 is legislation that will be introduced into the U.S. Congress probably in the next two to three weeks, which would phase out battery cages for hens in the United States. Unfortunately, it's a 15-year time frame, but as an indication of how hard it is to get national legislation for farm animals, it will be the first federal legislation to protect birds who are raised for food ever. It will be the first federal legislation to protect farm animals in more than 30 years. So it's uh, it's a very sad fact that the Animal Welfare Act exempts farm animals altogether. So there is no legislation that protects farm animals from these standard abuses that we've been talking about on the farm or during transportation. The only federal legislation that protects farm animals at all is called the Humane Slaughter Act, and it only protects mammals. And mammals are about 1.5% of slaughtered land animals. So we slaughter 100 times as many chickens as pigs. We slaughter 250 times as many chickens as cattle, and they are completely exempted from the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act. So it's uh, from an abuse standpoint, uh, really chickens are uh, the most abused animals on the face of the planet. Well, you re- and they have no legal protection at all. Well, your website is wonderful, farmsanctuary.org, and I, I want to encourage our listeners to go there to keep up with the issues that you've spoken about. You've got information about the human health impact, the environmental impacts of factory farming. You've also got labeling issues as well as legislative ones. So it's a great one-stop shop to keep up on these issues. And I also want to mention that you were recently at a national conference to end factory farming, and you were on a panel there. And I wonder, uh, we have a few minutes remaining, I wonder if you'd like to talk a little bit about the conference, uh, what you'd like people to know who were not able to attend. Yeah, the conference was it was the first conference to end factory farming, and we brought together the health, the environmental, the local community, and the animal welfare communities together to strategize about how we can effectively move against this common enemy, because factory farms aren't just bad for animals. They're also polluting the land, water, and air of the communities in which they exist. So what we find is that uh, disease rates and asthma rates among children and pretty much sickness in general around these factory farms and these factory slaughterhouses, Mm -hmm. sickness rates skyrocket and property values plummet. We find that factory farms, this intensive farming, leads to soil desertification, it's the number one cause of greenhouse gases globally. It's causing the decimation of the rainforest as the rainforest is chopped down to grow soy to feed to farmed animals environmentally. It's just a complete nightmare. And then from a human health standpoint, factory farms, because they treat animals so badly, they have to drug them up. 
so that they will live through conditions that would otherwise sicken and kill vast numbers of them. Well, they use these dual-use subtherapeutic antibiotics, which the American Medical Association and the entire health community nationally says is responsible for making people sick. These bugs mutate, things like E. coli and Salmonella and Campylobacter, these foodborne illnesses that infect tens of, cause tens of millions of illnesses every single year from contaminated meat. They also create these superbugs that can get around the antibiotics that human beings take, and so they're less effective when we get sick and we take these antibiotics. And they also, because people get low-level doses of these antibiotics when they eat meat, our resistance to the antibiotics can build up. So in a couple different ways, the antibiotics are less effective. So we gathered together these four communities, and it was both day one on Friday was education, day two on Saturday was strategy. What do we do to, to fight this common foe? And it was it was very, very encouraging. The, the conference sold out early, and there was a lot of optimism. There was both a lot of education, a lot of learning, and a lot of optimism about what we can do because people do care about these issues. And if we all band together, uh, we can be effective in fighting back. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just remind our listeners again, the factoryfarming.com website is excellent. You're mentioning of the Keeping Antibiotics Working. There's a wonderful website called KeepAntibioticsWorking.com. Healthcare Without Harm is another good website to learn more about this. And I think shifting the ways in which we raise farm animals, as you mentioned, can help so many other ills facing our society, as well as those external costs you know, that society has to pay for the abuses that happen on the factory farms. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it is definitely a huge social welfare program, the factory-farmed meat industry, because the industry doesn't pay for the health and environmental costs or the community costs of the products that are thus artificially cheap, and and consequently they don't pass those costs um, along to consumers. So if you actually figured the real cost into factory-farmed meat, it would be quite a bit more expensive than organic meat or the Animal Welfare uh, Institute, meat from the Animal Welfare Pro- Program, Animal Welfare Institute Program. That's, uh, that's one of the things that we were talking about, and it's, uh, it's absolutely true. Is there anything you want to leave us, Bruce? We've got one minute. I guess the take-home message for people is that it is very easy with a bit of consciousness and thought to take part in the animal protection movement. And when we sit down to eat, we are making a choice. If we choose to eat factory-farmed meat, you know, we don't know what's happening and we maybe don't think about what's happening, but we are entering into a relationship in which we are paying people to do things to animals and to the earth that we probably oppose. So the challenge of, of animal protection is to take Socrates seriously and to lead examined lives. So go to your local farmer's market Find out who your farmers are, and this is true for you know, for vegan foods and non-vegan foods. Visit the farms, visit the slaughterhouse, and really uh, the challenge is to, to be eyes wide open with regard to what we're eating. And uh, if you're not comfortable with something, don't pay people to do it on your behalf. 
Thank you, Bruce. We've been speaking with Bruce Friedrich. He is the Senior Director for Strategic Initiatives at Farm Sanctuary, where he leads Farm Sanctuary's legislation and litigation efforts. An extremely informative interview. To learn more, please go to www.farmsanctuary.org. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank Bruce so much for being my guest. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Bruce. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, Melinda. 